HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on tour, broadcasting live from Feast Portland. I'm Dana Cowan, and before we kick things off, we'd like to thank Travel Portland, Stream PDX, and the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage of Feast possible. Right now, I'm joined by Bonnie Morales. Bonnie, I'm so excited to see you here. I have never been to Kashka, but um, at, when I was at Food and Wine, we published your recipes. And when the team came out here to Portland, they came back and they're like, there's this person you have to meet. <laughs> so it took me a while, but, um, but here we are. Welcome. Hi, Dana. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I wanted to start out um, with a word. And the, the question is, like, at this moment in time, when there's so much controversy about you know, fact and fiction, the importance of words. And there's one word, which is the name of your restaurant that's very important to you and has a lot of meaning. So could you start by telling us like what is the meaning of kachka? Sure, I would love to. It's um it's a it is it is a very important word to me. Um so kachka just means duck in um in Belarusian and Ukrainian, uh, apparently in Polish, also in Yiddish. Um this And I'm assuming it's a duck and animal, not like <laughs> yes, duck. duck. <laughs> uh quack quack. Um which is different than in Russian. In Russian it's utka. Um, and that's the kind of the crux of the story. Um, uh, when I was a little girl, uh, my dad would tell me stories about my my family that um, was uh, lived through the, the World War II, and um, what that meant being Jewish in in Belarus and in Russia was, um, you know, persecution and the Holocaust. So um, my grandmother fled a ghetto in the middle of the night, um, and all her family was um, died the next day um, in a mass grave. Um, so she left. Alone. I yeah. Mean, well, with a baby, a three-month-old infant, and it was October and the coldest winter in, in you know Eastern Europe's history. And why alone? Um, because her her grandpa or her parents um, said we're old, and if we all go, and that, there were a lot of other children in the family. If we all go, we're go- someone's going to notice. But if you go by yourself, no one will notice, and you know, like save save yourself. And how old was she? Um, I th- I don't want to speak. Uh, maybe nineteen or twenty. Wow, like young. Um, yeah. So, I picture myself as a as a young adult, and I would could never have had that sort of bravery. But she left in the in the middle of the night. Um, everyone, in fact, was shot the next morning. Um, this How did was she find that out? 
Um, I, I think after the war. I don't know that that's something she found out immediately, um, obviously. But um, she traveled through the forests and headed um, east towards Russia because she was in Belarus at the time. She ended up in Smolensk um, and uh, fought as a partisan there. Um, but along the way, she you know, met a lot of people that you know, uh, wanted bad things to happen to her. Um, and one of them was a town warden. She had, you know, gone into a town for provisions and all that. And he, this guy was like, you're, no, you're a Jew. And she, her story at the time was that um, uh, she was a Ukrainian peasant, peasant traveling to Russia to uh, find her in-laws. Um, and uh, he, you know, he kept sort of like bugging her about that. And uh, eventually he said, well, if you're, if you're really Ukrainian, then how do you say duck in Ukrainian? I know they're all speaking in Russian. This is Soviet Union across all of these um, areas, even though each country has their own native language. Everybody speaks Russian. Um, so she just, you know, hoped that and she spoke Yiddish at home and she knew the Yiddish word. And, and there are sometimes when they're the same and she just hoped that maybe this one was. And she said, Kachka, and he let her go. And um, as a little girl, I mean, there were, she had, it's amazing how many stories like that she had. And then if you extrapolate that out to all of the people who uh, went through something like this during World War II, um, it's, it's just so many little chance moments. And But this one particular story, maybe because it involved a duck, I don't know, when I was little, <laughs> that, one, that one really stuck with me. Um, and so that word's just, it's just, it's just important to me. And I, on the menu, um, I learned so many words, right? I, I didn't need to read it with a dictionary because it's pretty clear um, what different things are. But I was, um, I just love the fact that you didn't put everything in English, you know? <laughs> and so tell me about some of the, I, they're, they're very romantic sounding words, like the shashlika and the, that, did I pronounce that right? Shashliki? Yeah. Like the, the plural the, of shashlik, yeah. The skewers. And uh -huh. what was the choice that you made to have Russian and is Cyrillic the... Yeah, things are in Cyrillic um, for the menu, for the, for menu. the title, uh, the section heads. Um, I want, it, w it was a conscious decision. It wasn't just something stylistic or design-based. Um, I... The food that we make, and Russian I use as sort of a catch-all because my family immigrated during the Soviet Union, when it was still the Soviet Union, and so they immigrated from a place that's now called Belarus, but when they left, that didn't exist. But they also weren't Russian, but they also weren't Soviet because they were defectors. They actually, they saw themselves as Jewish, but that's not a nationality by our standards. And so it's even me like telling people what I, what I am is kind of a loaded, I, I don't know how to answer that. So I use Russian. And a lot of people in my situation use the word Russian, but then there's a huge asterisk to that because that means Russia and all these other former Soviet republics in a lot of times. Um, anyway, um, that part of the world does just does not get represented um, in the culinary world at all. Um, and when it does, it's sort of a negative rec representation. There's often sort of a, a feeling of it being gray and drab and unhealthy. Um, and that's so frustrating to me. Um, so I make a point to say, no, I'm going to use the word that that is Russian, why would I use the French word? Why would I use the Italian word, right? I'm gonna use the Russian word. So, you know, people say creme fraiche. Well, it's not creme fraiche, it's smithana. And it actually is different. It's different because of slightly different cultures. And people say, oh, but that's just creme fraiche. No, it's it's not, it's, it's smithana. And I want you to know that word. And maybe one day people will see it as smithana first and creme fraiche second, or maybe on equal playing fields. Another uh, thing that comes into play there is um, service ruse, right? So we 
we assume that the service style in a restaurant that we have today is French or just came out of the thin air. But in fact, it is um, Russian service. Do you want to talk about like what that those words mean, which are said in French, actually? Right? Yeah, I mean, um, th- yeah, that's the thing is that um, fr- uh, France and Russia during you know the 1800s and, and early 1900s pre-revolution um, had sort of a love affair with each other and so many things um, that are sort of uh, taken for granted in French um, uh, dining actually come from Russia. And the same is true in Russia. There's a lot of stuff that's part of their um, dining and, and culinary lexicon that's actually French. Um, and so Russian-style service is one of those things. And, um, you know, uh, the that's sort of the, the formal in a banquet setting where you're individually served. Um, that's considered to be Russian-style service. And that's we've taken that for granted to be this, like, French banquet style, and it's actu- actually Russian. Um, and there's so many things like that. Um, what are some others? Um, well... I think that um, blinle or blini, um, as people will say, um, are considered to be this like French uh, um, uh, caviar accompaniment, um, and for some reason they're always considered to ha- need to have potato in them. And I I see that a lot in recipes um, that like blini equal potato pancakes, and I don't <laughs> even know where that comes from. And I, it must be a French thing, but they I mean they're they're very Russian and they're yeasted and they're delicious and they don't have potato. Um, and so that's that's one that's that's really funny to me. Um, uh, I don't know. I, this is, I think, just on parallel. But the use of aspic um, in French, um, like sort of high French cuisine, um, is mirrored in Russian cooking. But it's a lot more. And I'm sure in in sort of country style French, it's also very rustic. But um, you don't clarify really. You make something called, for example, chaladets or studen, which is um, where it's you're you're cooking. Uh, some animal parts that have a higher gelatin uh, amount anyway, and so when it's cold, it gets thick. Um, and so it's, but it's like it, it's a very Russian uh, thing to make cholodits, um, and that that's with calves' feet. Um, and but you know, in sort of that's often considered. People will say, oh, but, oh, that's aspic, um, you know, something said in aspic. I'm like, no, no, it's cholodits, and it's its own thing, and it has the right to be there on its own as it as a Russian thing too. Um, yeah, there's there's so there's so many things like that that I see. So um, you've reclaimed the cuisine in a way. Did you you didn't grow up with an enormous appreciation of it, <laughs> as I understand. But were you speaking Russian at home and you were eating and was someone speaking Russian at home? Yeah. Uh, yeah. My, uh, I learned Russian first. So my parents immigrated the year before I was born um, and my mom um, uh, stayed home with me and she spoke we should end up having like a Russian daycare actually um, so all the kids were other immigrants um, kids um, and I was sort of you know patient zero in that she started staying at home because she's like well I now I have a baby and you know, I might as well make money while I'm doing it <laughs> so um, uh, she had a Russian daycare so in addition to learning Russian first just because they didn't speak English they didn't know it yet um, I had all these other little friends around that were also speaking Russian. I learned English from Sesame Street and going to <laughs> kindergarten. Um, so, so yeah, so I learned that first. Um, I, but as a result, and I, I, this is not a unique story, but you know, when you are the, the child of immigrants in the United States, there's a huge pressure and desire sometimes from within and sometimes from the people around you to do what they do. 
Um, I wanted nothing more than to have um, Hamburger Helper. <laughs> I remember like wanting to stay for dinner at my friends' um, houses because they would like have these like box dishes that I thought were so like magical. And I might because we never had them in our house, probably because they were expensive, but also because my mom cooked and she made she made stuff from scratch. And I, I, I'm guessing it's because it was less expensive to do so. But either way. Um, it was so foreign to me that that's like all I wanted. And I thought it was so exotic to have these like cool boxed things. Um, <laughs> uh, and so now you've got these beautiful dishes on, on your menu, um, that, you know, harken back to what you ate in childhood, but also true Russian food that now we can all share and appreciate. But one of the things that I, um, was really excited about was the vodka. So <laughs> last night I got to have your food for the first time at um, From Russia with Love. And you make a, a vodka with horseradish yeah. that was just <laughs> off the charts. It was so great. I mean, I can't say, I was in, um, I was in, the old Soviet Union once with my grandparents in 1976. Wow, and what a time to be there. It was amazing. I mean, my, you know, uh, I was there with my older brother and my grandparents and my brother snuck off with the tour guide and went like drinking every night because he was five years older and I was like where'd he go <laughs> there was so much vodka and so much drinking it wasn't quite like that last night but um but it was great and you've started a spirits company yeah Troika Spirits which I'm intrigued by tell me about like the role of spirits in this and you know spirits can take a dark turn as well and in Russia historically there's been, you know, a lot of talk about how spirits can take a dark turn. Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I, for me, it's more about, and I spoke about this a little bit last night too. For me, it's more about the culture of eating and, and, um, drinking together and kind of that environment, not so much about getting drunk. Um, and obviously when alcohol is involved, it can go that way. I mean, some people, um, take it that direction. However, it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and I think, um, the idea of uh, eating and drinking and toasting and 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 eating and doing that all together um, is really so critical and makes it an experience rather than an excuse to get drunk. Let's um, talk about toasting. Yeah, because it's a whole world unto itself. Is there a Russian style of toasting? Uh, or how do you make a great toast? Mm -hmm. I, you should bring my dad on for that question. <laughs> um, it can be really elaborate. It can be really short and sweet. Um, some people, so for some people, it is just an excuse to drink. And so they'll be like, yeah, let's just drink to us and down the hatch. But um, especially if there's an event, like somebody's birthday or whatever, you make a point to have like, not just here's a toast to the birthday boy, but um, taking the time to like maybe write a poem sometimes I've seen at big um, Russian parties or, um, or yeah, a song even sometimes. It doesn't have to be just like a toast. Um, but the idea that you've spent time to, to really sort of search your soul for something really um, meaningful is, is I think, done more often than um, you normally see when people are just drinking and giving a quick toast. Um, but in general, there's also a sense, there is some, like, 
uh, decorum to it where there's always a toast to the ladies you know because it tends to be the men who um, take on major drinking but um, or um, my dad always says that the toast to the ladies happens once you know you're probably going to get in trouble later (laughs) (laughs) Um, so um, or you know a toast to um, I said it last night actually this is a really common as a toast to everything that joins us Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that kind of has this like poetry to it and it's even it's short and sweet but it um, it's a nice reminder to like actually think about that thing um, that seems rote, but it's not. I mean, it actually has weight to it. Um, yeah, there's a whole litany of them, of some that are sort of um, standard issue, but even those, I feel like, have this, like, cleverness to them. But, yeah, they can be long and winding, too, and it's just the point is to make sure to say something that you really feel in the moment, and as people drink, they tend to get a little gushier, and it's a good, it's a good thing. It's, like a, it's almost like a group therapy session. <laughs> so um, you were saying, you know, the things that, join us mm-hmm. and um, you know one of the things at this very moment in time is there's so much that divides us mm. and um, whatever part of Russia Soviet Union you want to consider Russia is one of those things that divides people on how they feel about the country how they feel about um, their relationship to America and does how do you feel about that vis-a-vis the restaurant it, I think we so many of us feel that um, the restaurant and cooking has become a far more political act. And I'm just wondering how you feel about that in light of the intersection between what you're doing and today's politics. Yeah, that's a good, that's a great question. Um, I like to remind people that the food that, that our people cook at home, even whoever's sort of in charge politically, um, is just the food that they're cooking at home. And there's, you know, the, the things that are happening at the Kremlin or the White House don't reflect always the people underneath them. Um, and so I, for me, this is, this is very personal. This is about my family. This is about their, their struggle and the struggles of so many other people like them. And so I, I, that's my take on it is that you can cook for political reasons, but so often um, it's brought into the picture when it shouldn't be because at the end of the day everybody eats and the the thing you know that's the thing that I want people to focus on is the people um, that uh, this cuisine represents that are that are eating this every day regardless of what's going on above them and uh, on your menu um, what are your what are your favorite dishes I know there's some very famous dishes <laughs> um, but for you What's, what is the dish that feels closest to home mm. and comfort and, um, you know, true meaning for you? I mean, they all have meaning for you. But. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's, that is, a, they do all. Like, I, I think that uh, having reverence and, and thought behind stuff is really important. Um, but uh, the one that's always on the menu and always will be on the menu that has probably the, the, the most significance would be um, Golubtse, which are cabbage rolls. And that's because, so although we do with some things a little bit more than others. Galipsa are something that we've made the same since day one, and it is as close to what my mom makes at home as it can be. Um, I mean, I, I make a few adjustments, but um, <laughs> one of them is there's pork and lamb in them, um, and she tends to make hers with chicken because that's, you know, quote-unquote healthier. Um, but uh, And she doesn't do pork, really, um, but I do because I'm a terrible Jew. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so, so they're that, that little minor difference, but besides that, they're literally how she would make them. And it's something that I, you know, 
um, as a home cook, my mom has the same like seven dishes or so that she puts on like repeat for the most part. Um, and so like she's still feeding my kids when she watches them those same galopse that I you know had to eat when I was a kid and like so those are still on the menu if I go if I you know like come to her house there's you know usually leftover cabbage rolls in the fridge.